Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. We've been talking a lot about mental health on this podcast, really going back to last National Diabetes Awareness Month. So I'm very excited for our guest today. She's a podcaster. She's a longtime diabetes advocate, diabetes blogger, diabetes community member, and she's a therapist. In fact, she's the diabetic therapist, Allison Nimos. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you as well. We have, I think we first connected when I was in Minnesota four four years ago now, I think. Uh, I was speaking yeah. for a little JDRF event there. Shout out to our, our JDRF Minnesota chapter. They have been a longtime supporters of, of the podcast and what we do here. And we got to meet and talk at length on that trip. And I guess, you know, just since then, there's been a few things that have happened, but in both of our lives and also obviously in the, in the global pandemic, obviously was a part of that. And now kind of coming out of it, really excited that you also are promoting the latest version of the Diabetes and Mental Health Conference, which we're going to talk at length about later, but that conference is May 5th and 6th of 2023. So at time of recording, about a month out from where we are today. So Allison, like we normally do. Let's talk a little bit about your life with diabetes. And even I'd love to talk about early days in the diabetes online community as well, because I think it's so important to know where we came from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have had type 1 diabetes for 29 years. And I got started in the diabetes community in high school. So as we were talking about before we started recording, sometimes I kind of feel like the grandma in the diabetes community because it's like, that's over 20 years that I have been involved in the diabetes online community. And it has changed so much. I was just thinking about this the other day that when we first started blogging, we could we could keep up with the number of people who had blogs. And I don't think you could try to record the number of people who have blogs and Instagrams and TikToks and websites now. I mean, there's just so many people, so many voices, which is so exciting, so exciting. But yeah, it was super tiny and kind of nascent back in, you know, the, I guess, mid to late aughts. Is that what they call it? And yeah, uh, <laughs> and yeah things have changed a lot, but it has been really cool to see that that evolution and to see so many more people feeling comfortable talking about diabetes and putting like uh, so many of it was so much of it was like anonymous back then. And, and not that things aren't still anonymous, but I think people are feeling more and more comfortable putting themselves out there and, and talking about diabetes. I totally agree. And I think, you know, we're 200 episodes on the feed when this goes live. And we're not even close to interviewing even a large percentage of the number of active voices in the diabetes community. And even in the, uh, you know, now seven, eight years since we've started doing this podcast, the amount of people who are sharing their stories is is way up. And, the, and I think the community is better as a result. And I think I can confidently say now, like, no matter who you are, no matter where you are living with diabetes, there's somebody who is sharing their story that you can connect with and going you know, back to the aughts, back when I was first diagnosed and, you know, almost 20 years ago now, that that's a different story. And so I'm, you know, in, in a lot of ways, obviously a, a di diagnosis with diabetes is, is never good, but at least now there's more voices to follow. There's more, 
amazing people to be inspired by no matter what you're into. And I think that's something to celebrate for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I first started my blog, like one of the things that inspired me was I felt like I didn't, there was no one in college with diabetes on the internet. And it was like, now there's, you know, the diabetes link, you know, formerly, you know, CDN. And there are so many more people who are able to kind of contribute those stories and the accessibility to a community is just, it's so much more accessible than it, it was when I was first diagnosed and, and growing up. It's exciting. And one of the, I think one of the big wins of social networking and the internet is just connecting all of, all of us folks with chronic illnesses to each other. So with that in mind, we've talked at length and not just here, everywhere in the diabetes community at different times about the impact of diabetes and mental health. And so, you know, for you living with diabetes and also practicing as a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, Let's talk about, you know, let's get past the just that people with diabetes are three times as likely to suffer from anxiety and depression, which I think is a is a, is a very impactful line, especially when you read it for the first time, because you can see it's like, oh, OK, well, maybe this anxiety and some of this depression that I'm experiencing is, is normalized. And I think that's really important to, to use in that language. And so for you, you know, when you're thinking about the impact of diabetes and mental health after all this time in the online space and all this time practicing with patients, you know, what are, you know, some of the things that that people with diabetes should be conscious of and try to notice in their life that may manifest themselves as anxiety and depression. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think knowing the stat is is really important, but I think one of the other stats that I like to share when I give presentations about diabetes and mental health is actually the prevalence of diabetes distress. The diabetes distress is even more prevalent, like 40 to 50% of people with diabetes at any given time are experiencing moderate to severe diabetes distress. And because diabetes distress isn't, isn't a diagnosis, it's, it's not in our DSM, it can often go overlooked because there are not, you know, it's, it's not something that psychotherapists are going to get trained on. And there's not really kind of, I mean, the diabetes distress scale is a great way to assess that. Um, but it it doesn't come up as much in like discussions with like endocrinologists or even like your own therapist if you have one. Um, so I think that can often get overlooked. So what I I think first, very first thing I would want if anyone here is listening and and wants to know like what is something I might be able to take away and do with this podcast I'm listening to is to do a self-assessment of diabetes distress. And you can do that at diabetesdistress.org. And no, they're not paying me to say this. I get no commission. But I just think it's a really great resource and an insight into the areas. There are seven areas, subscales, we call them, in diabetes distress that this asks you lots of questions about that. And when you know the source of the feelings, that's when we can problem solve and that's when we can take action and do something. A lot of times, you know, patients, clients that come to me, they know things don't feel great. They know that something seem, feels off. They just, they don't really, they, they don't feel empowered. They don't feel confident. They don't feel, you know, joy or, or anything like that. And when you have kind of a sense that something is off, but not really knowing the direction it's coming from, 
it can feel even more disempowering and hopeless because you don't know what can you do. And so that's one thing that I would recommend that that people can get started doing it on their own, you know, today to kind of raise their own self-awareness about what their lived experience is. Well, I, I also want to focus on like awareness in general. It's like not just self-awareness, but you know, I, I didn't know the diabetesdistress.org existed. So, and I'm pretty informed <laughs> and I'm, you know, so I think there's opportunity obviously to find that awareness of what distress diabetes is bringing to your life. And I think we, we, we all can look back at our diagnosis dates for the most part, those of us who were old enough to remember how radically our life changed, but we don't associate that change with why we're feeling the way we're feeling necessarily. Like, you know, we don't always make that connection. I think a lot of it comes back to language and how we talk to ourselves about it. You had a post recently on Instagram that kind of walked through like the importance of language and self-talk and the way that we talk about our diabetes. And I think, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about that with you in terms of like how thoughts and beliefs can become reality. I'll share a little bit, something of my own. I, uh, in 2021, probably I started writing myself notes on my alarms. So like when you on an Apple iPhone, you have your alarm and it has a label and you can write something there. So I would write something either just a little snippet or a quote or, you know, a to-do list for like the first things in the morning. So the first thing I see is, you know, how I start my day. And there was a period where that language was really harsh. And I was like speaking to myself as kind of like a drill sergeant. I was just very, you know, overly, uh, I don't know, mean. Toxic <laughs> is the word you're looking for, Toxic, friends. mean, yeah, you know. <laughs> very directive, like not, not sensitive and kind of like, you know, we talk about softening edges, like with mental health, it was a very hard, direct language. So it's kind of like a slap in the face, like early in the morning. And I changed that, you know, in, in 2022, I, was, I just became aware, I conscious of like, oh, the way I'm talking to myself, I really wouldn't talk to anybody else that way. So maybe this is a factor in like why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. And I think that changing that, softening those edges and being a little bit more open to myself has given me a little less, less distress in terms of all of those kind of daily, you know, starting my day on the good foot. So I would love to talk to you about, you know, the words that we use for ourselves and how we can treat ourselves bet more like a friend than, than an enemy. Yeah. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to work with my clients on because I think the idea of being compassionate with someone else, with a friend or family member who's struggling, is very well taught, role modeled, example, like we really elevate that as we should. But the idea of doing that to ourselves, to speak to ourselves as we would a friend, has a lot of misconceptions and myths around around that you know people can feel that being self-compassionate is indulgent or it'll make you lazier it means you don't care and that that being that judge being that critic being the you know almost a bully is motivating it'll this will motivate me if i'm really kind of you know give myself the stern talking to i'll shape up i'll lower my A1C, I'll pre-bulls earlier if I kind of shame myself into it. And what research shows is that absolutely is not true. 
it doesn't work. It is in all of the research that they have done on on this, and there's quite a body of work now. Yeah, shaming and and judgment does not motivate somebody in into action. And the worst thing is it it, it actually it's harmful. You know, it brings up in us that fight or flight reaction, right? When we have somebody who is harming us, we want to kind of run away. And it's sort of a catch-22 because in self-judgment, we're both sort of, we're the victim and the perpetrator at the same time. And so, yeah, creating some awareness around the language that you use in response to the things that happen like a high blood sugar or forgetting to bolus or forgetting to bolus early enough or whatever it is that you think you did wrong and that you want to respond with harsh criticism is really noticing that pathway that sort of cause and effect Because I think what a lot of people would probably notice is that when this event happens, whatever it is, this event happens and then they have they have beliefs about the event. So this is something I talk a lot about with clients is the connection between beliefs and thoughts. Thoughts are more like things that happen in the moment, but beliefs are like the foundation, like how you are grounded. The beliefs that you have about the event feed the thought that you have in that moment. And then that thought will then impact what kind of response that you're going to have. And the more difficult the thought and the more difficult the response, eventually you're going to go into avoidance mode. That's just normal. You know, there's only so much, there's only so long before you can fight. That's usually what people go into like right away. And not everybody, but that's often like, you know, when you get that harsh criticism from your endo and you'll go... I'll show them and it lasts for a certain period of time. But eventually, coming from you and for, you know, days on end, it it has the opposite effect of, of what you're intending, which is to motivate, but it actually goes, I can't do this. I I'm not good at this. This isn't something that I can do. And it's so emotionally difficult. I'm having such a hard time coping that I'm going to avoid. I'm going Mm. to not engage as much. And that's where we see like the distress and some of the burnout happening. So that's kind of the pathway that that can take. That really resonates with me, I think, you know, from the beliefs and thoughts, because I think often we talk about how thoughts become reality, but we don't understand maybe the, the precursor to that, which is the beliefs that turn into the thoughts that turn into the reality and how that is rooted so deeply within us. And I think, like you mentioned, we often don't see ourselves as a, as a, as a entity. We, you know, we don't, and the way that we talk and think, we don't think of that as an interpersonal relationship. And so for me, you know, hearing like, well, you should speak to yourself like you speak to a close friend, that sort of makes it really tangible, or at least for me, made it really tangible. Like, oh, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like I would never, I'm like overly nice is probably one of my like flaws. Honestly, I'm just too nice. But it's like, okay, well, can I apply that to myself? Uh, but then on the other side is like, you know, when you're in in your body, like your body and your brain are part of the same thing, but your mind is separate. And like that, even that is kind of 
how your physical body and your and your mental body interact. Uh, mm -hmm. Diabetes is such a personal thing. Like you talked about that resistance. And when we hear something bad or we hear something personal, because diabetes is part of us, at least early on in my diagnosis, whenever anyone would ask me a question, even if it was innocuous, like I would get uncomfortable because it felt like a, a something different being pointed out about me. And, and I think there's like shame and there's, you know, you sort of go reactive. And that first reaction is to be defensive and to put up the walls and to maybe react in anger for me, at least, you know, when I was, when I was much younger, but you know, it can be, it's, it's such a personal thing. Hey, your A1C is too high. If your endo is saying that to you or whatever the case may be, that feels like a personal attack because it's something that you are managing and going through, even though you're doing the best you can do, you know, ideally it, it still feels like a personal failure. And then you have no one to blame but yourself. And you start that negative pattern of just, you know, getting back on that roller coaster of blaming yourself, you know, not making the changes or reacting. And then you're back to the, back to the cycle. But it can be smaller than that, right? Like I, you, something you said just really like caught my attention when you were like something personal that you're managing. I don't know if it's just me, but I used to get really triggered when somebody asked me why my pump was beeping because it'd just be like, I am handling it. Like, shut up, just let me handle it, you know? And I sometimes would come off as rude, but it just felt like not an attack, but just like you're questioning me and my methods and my management. So it can be as small as, oh, are you okay? Why is your pump beeping? Or like, hey, do you need some sugar? Is your blood sugar low? You're acting kind of weird. Like, I personally get triggered by those types of questions. I don't like them. But. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I was thinking is the, you know, belief of the pump beeping or the story. That's another, you know, kind yeah. of phrase I'll use. Like the, the story you tell yourself about the thing. So if, if a pump beeping is the story I tell myself about my pump beeping is that something bad is happening, something wrong is going on, and then somebody notices then we might have this thought of they're judging me for for not managing my diabetes because I have a belief that my pump beeping is a bad thing and it's being pointed out and now I feel shame. Exactly. Or even for me, it's like I have a belief that I don't want to be different from everybody else. And I know Rob, right. and I don't want anybody to like look at me and be like, oh, that's the girl with diabetes. So it's like if my pump beeps and someone's like, why are you beeping? Now everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's the girl with diabetes. Yeah. So that's yeah. more of the story in my head. Yeah. Being different is bad. Right. Yeah. If story. If we have a story that we're telling ourselves that having diabetes is shameful, is bad, then whenever we're in a situation where our diabetes might be noticeable, we are going to carry those. We're going to have those thoughts of they're going to think something. What are they thinking? What are they going to do? What's going to happen? And it feels really in the moment, but it comes from a much deeper story. And so that's some of the the work that I do and that therapists do in counseling is to kind of look at what is what are the stories that you're walking around with? How are they manifesting? And then how can we make some shifts so that we have, you know, shifts in those stories so that we have better outcomes? This is actually a really great transition to my next questions that I want to talk about around self-advocacy, because, you know, what you're describing, Eritrea, when your pump beeps and somebody asks you a question, now you're in a situation where you have to be your own advocate on a very micro level. It's not the same as uh, when you're at the endocrinologist's office or you're on the phone with your insurance company and you're trying to get a prior authorization for the medicine that they have, you know, that you have a prescription for that you need, but they don't want to cover. That, that's a different type of advocacy. I think a bigger 
And you might be more galvanized to do that because when you pick up the phone, you know what you're going to have to do. You have a little bit of an expectation of what you're going to have to go through. But when someone sort of surprises you with a, a because you know, as we all know, those of us that wear pumps that beep, they beep at weird times and you can't always decide when they're going to beep. And somebody asking you, that becomes a micro moment of self-advocacy. And we, as people with chronic illnesses, have to advocate for ourselves in many different situations. And I think back to that mindset, it can be difficult to, you know, if you're low on energy or you've had a difficult diabetes day or you're in a high state of diabetes distress, to advocate for yourself even on a micro level. And as you said, Eritrea, like maybe a, a, a brisk remark or a rude comment like that you give back, uh, that person has no idea what you've gone through that brought you to that point. They think that they've caused it and it's almost never the case. So Allison, I'd love to know like some of the ways that you galvanize yourself to remember to be your own advocate and some of the ways that you discuss that with your patients as well. Yeah, well, I think the word that comes to mind hearing, hearing this is boundaries. And we actually have a whole session on boundaries at our conference. But one of the, you know, things that a lot of people struggle with in diabetes and with any client I've ever worked with is on personal boundaries. And it kind of goes back to this kind of what we were talking about with compassion. Like we're sort of trained to be like really nice to people. And the idea of having boundaries can feel kind of mean. Like I can't say no, or they're just, we kind of make, you know, we try to explain it away of like why allowing people to say or do things or ask us things, but having to sort of capitulate or participate, you know, even though it doesn't feel good, we, we feel obligated. And so, so this question kind of makes me think a lot about how we identify and communicate boundaries of what we are okay talking about, what we are okay being asked what we are okay participating in. And that can be really challenging for people who, you know, don't have a lot of conversation or a lot of opportunities to really think about what their boundaries are and to learn how to communicate that in, I think, respectful and effective ways. Because I think most people just think of boundaries as being kind of those like sort of mean little retorts that don't even really feel that good once you're done doing it. Like, you know, you may have set a boundary, but, you know, you don't feel that great either. And, and I always, I always tell, you know, my clients, like setting, setting boundaries protects the relationship. It helps to guide the relationship so that the people in your world know how to relate to you, know how to support right. you, know how to help you. And that, you know, you are, are guiding them and, and vice versa, that they will guide you on, on their boundaries and what they need. So that's, that's something that I would encourage people to, to be thinking about. I, I want to talk a little bit about boundaries because I think sometimes it can be really uncomfortable when you make new boundaries or you decide what your boundaries are and you sort of verbalize those because uh, you're prioritizing yourself like that's not a, that, that's not a selfish selfish the the negative connotation selfish it is a selfish act because you're trying to help yourself you're trying to create a space for yourself and i think sometimes it feels like a, a four letter word it feels like a bad word when you're like hey i don't do that anymore or hey i it can make people uncomfortable and i think part of that is just because so few people 
these days have those established those boundaries for themselves and are, are aware of you know what things are good for them or or not and and we can kind of talk about this like on a broader scale just you know we talked about diabetes distress but like there are a lot of similarities that people with diabetes deal with on on a regular basis regarding their mental health and i think a lot of them stem from boundaries either ones that we haven't established or ones that are encroached upon by external factors or ones that we maybe aren't as honest with ourselves about or or aren't able to commit to so you know what are some of the similarities that you see with you know patients whether you know differing levels of diabetes distress or just dealing with diabetes burnout or you know diabetes affecting their mental health yeah well one thing that comes to mind is the idea that of being a burden to other people and so we may not not advocate for ourselves with our family or with friends saying i, I need some help. I need some support. I need to, I need to do something differently, or I need you to help me to do something differently because we don't want to be, we don't want to be a burden. And so, yeah, that's something that I see come up a lot around the idea of, you know, being able to kind of speak up for, for ourselves and how that contributes to diabetes distress. And then of course you have things where you're being, you know, you're, you feel like you're being asked to do something, you know, oh, we want to, we want, we want to do something. And maybe it feels like not the right decision for you, but, you know, you don't want to say, you don't want to, you don't want to refuse something that, you know, you know, grandma cooked and say, no, I, I don't really want that right now. Or, grandma boundaries are tough. I'm not, I'm not going to have seconds or whatever it is. And 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 that can just feel like, well, I, I don't, I can't say no, like, you know, and because we're, we are sort of afraid of what people are going to do or say or be offensive. And so that across the board leads to a lot of, a lot of distress for anybody. If that's the story we're telling ourselves that saying no is offensive and it should be avoided. And I think no also has, no is a boundary. And you had oh, a post is a boundary. This, yeah. uh, you had a post about this recently and friend of the pod. She she was on one of our first 15 episodes. Melissa Urban, formerly Hartwig, is, is like a, wrote a book on boundaries and talks about no as a complete sentence. And, you know, sometimes just saying no and, and not having to explain and not burdening yourself with having to explain is, is a strong boundary, a strong foundation. It takes practice, though, because it really does feel uncomfortable because I yeah. think from a societal perspective, people don't... We, we don't talk about saying no as an option very often, <laughs> you know, say no to drugs for sure. Like obviously is like, you know, as a big campaign behind it, but that took a long time too. And like saying no to peer pressure and saying no to things where you try to fit in. And, and I also think for young people who are trying socially to fit in, uh, it could be very challenging to say no in a, in a high pressure situation, whether socially or, you know, just fun or not wanting to explain I talked about it on the podcast before, but a few years ago on 7-Eleven Day, I didn't get a Slurpee. My whole team went to the went to a 7-Eleven. I didn't get a Slurpee. I got a Coke Zero because I had like 12 units left in my pump, and we were go it was in the afternoon. I didn't want to deal with the you know the the roller coaster of bolusing for for a sugary beverage. Sorry, Slurpee. But the and somebody some people commented like, just get the Slurpee, just drink the Slurpee, and I was like, well, you know, that's my choice. I don't have to do what you want me to do, and. It was a really weird interaction. So, you know, if that, I, I think I blocked that person. If they're out there, I will beat you. This is bottom line. 
So uh, I will beat you. But like at the same time, I think like it did feel weird. I was like, okay, well, this is such a strange thing for people to be upset about. But again, I had to worry about myself and what was right for me in that moment. And I think, you know, on a day-to-day basis, uh, that can be that can be challenging. And especially when you're, you know, dealing with it, the boundaries and relationships that you really care about. Yeah. Uh, it, it takes an extra step of recognition. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even saying no. It's saying it's not about even saying no to, you know, the food. Sometimes it's that you have said yes to something and people want to know, well, why? Why can you eat that? And Absolutely. why, you know, I thought you had diabetes and all this stuff. And so, so sometimes it, it it isn't because you've said no. It's because you're you're saying no to a type of interaction that doesn't feel healthy, that doesn't feel safe, and that we are able to kind of slow down and talk to somebody and say, you know, even that I understand maybe why you're asking this, and maybe you know if you want to, you can say like I appreciate your curiosity. Thanks for your interest or your care, but. And then you set your boundary of, you know, talking about my food choices isn't something I do. And I think that is such a succinct way of of doing it. I think a really strong way of operating. And I think that I've had a lot of practice. Well, right. (laughs) Which is why you're here. And I think, you know, for somebody who maybe has only done that one or two times or has thought about it, but not committed to it, it is an option. It does feel uncomfortable. But I think sometimes and this is like an improv thing that I haven't thought about in a while, but you kind of have to follow the fear sometimes. If you're afraid to set that boundary and you feel it in the butterflies in your stomach or you know, just that really kind of uncomfortable feeling, that's your brain warming up to do something new. And I think like kind of following that fear sometimes will lead you to a place that you don't know. And we, we talk about a lot, I think, you know, online advocates do this ex- extremely well. Every opportunity that you encounter a stigma or a predisposition is an opportunity to educate. Now, you may not have energy to educate at that particular moment. And that, I think, is where some of the, the conflict and the difficulty arises. But by learning to you know, say how you feel and be aware of why you feel that way, even to a total stranger, you, know, you can be successful in those, in those situations. Yeah. Well, it, that line reminds me of something I, I, I often say, you know, you, you cannot be comfortable at something you don't do. Mm. If, you, if you're avoiding something, a lot, of, a lot of clients, a lot of people that I work with, they're like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not comfortable with that yet. I'm not comfortable. And so I'll ask them, like, have you ever been comfortable and totally confident in something that, that you've never done? And then they go, no. And it's like, that's the idea. You know, we are not going to feel really like confident and like knowing the outcome to something like the the first time you are doing something or even the first handful of times that you're building, you're building that skill. But we don't build the skill by avoidance. My therapist... And shout out to shout out to her. I won't name her, I guess, but I could. I don't think you're uh, supposed to. You can. You can. She's she's like ten. <laughs> you can. She's not, a, she's, she's not a secret spy. Yeah, there's no. There's no. Yeah, there's no like. Oh my god! Patient, what a flex! Patient I'm provider. I know. Well, <laughs> what a, I'm Rob House therapist. What a flex! Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you know, she was talking to me about we we've been working together for three and a half years now, and she said, you know, if you had done anything 
almost every week for three years, anything else other than what we're working on, you would not be surprised that your skills are better at that than someone who has never done it. But when we look at ourselves, we look at things like mental health and, and therapy and practice and, and mindfulness. We don't associate those the same way we would with like skill acquisition of like nailing a hammer or, 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 or building a birdhouse or something, you know, like you're, and I think that's a really interesting way. I, I'm not sure exactly why. I think it's just probably human nature of like, we just don't, we, we're not as good at affirming ourselves the work that we're doing internally because it's not tangible always. And like you said, but if you don't practice it, if you if you don't put it in practice, you'll never be good at it because the first time you do something, anything, it's always worse than the hundredth time you do it. I was I was I don't know, maybe maybe that's too like generic, but I think also the reason this is so is connecting for me so much is because you know so much of my life is spent in social media content, not just for myself but for my clients as well. And there, I can't think of any other like type of of output where we assume on day one, the first thing that we put out there is, is going to go be the the best post of all time. And, and, you know, we're disappointed that it didn't, that every post didn't go viral, even though it had no business doing that. And we're just getting started. And awesome creator, Mr. Beast has a, has a really clickbaity kind of talk where he says like, oh, you want to be famous on YouTube? Make a hundred videos. No one's going to watch them, but on that 101st video, something magical will happen and it'll be so much better than video one that you'll have found something, you'll learn some skill and you'll be in a different place than you were prior. And mm -hmm. I think like so, that's so much of what we're saying is like going to therapy once or, or going attending one conference is not going to change immediately all of the way that we deal with our diabetes or our diabetes distress, but it does put us on a path where we can practice and return to that practice to improve that skill set and, and that commitment to ourselves. So I, I don't know, that was kind of a, a windy road answer, but. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. I, I definitely, and I, you know, I think in the diabetes world, one, one place where I see the sort of the mental and the physical go hand in hand is with hypoglycemia. And so many people I work with have, you know, fear of hypoglycemia or hypoanxiety. And so they, you know, they go, well, I felt anxiety, so I did I did something, right? So there's this link between thoughts, emotions, and behavior. And when they tried to, you know, not get, you know, not maybe eat as much, or maybe it's the, you know, the reverse, it's trying to pre-bowl us a little bit earlier, but they were really anxious. And they go, I was so anxious, so I didn't do it again. And I was like, that's... That's that's missing the point. The, the first time you are going to have anxiety, but the more you do it, the anxiety will. It's not a it's not a light switch. It's not just going to go on and then off. It's more analog than which is you know pretty old school. You know the dials, right? It's it's a dot. You're going to kind of dial down the anxiety that you feel in situations, but it's something that is gradual and over time through exposure to this new way of thinking and, and behaving and the outcome of seeing that you were okay is the thing that starts to override the old story. Hmm. So overriding the old story is really hard to do. We actually have to do some, just some actions in order to start to 
have some evidence to to rewrite because that old story is so so sticky and and because it has been the story we have a lot of evidence for it we have a lot of evidence to support that and we're familiar Um, with it and we're familiar with it it feels safe there's a lot of things that feel like pretty normal and natural even though you you probably cognitively could see there's some issues with it but a lot of people want to just work on the story first they're like i'm just gonna change it and they find so much resistance to that and it's because to really change some of the story is to go, I need to, I actually just need to try, try the pre thing to see that it's going to work. I can't tell myself ahead of time that the pre thing is going to work because you're, you know, I mean, that's faith, I guess. You could just try to do that, but to really feel confident in something and to really start to override some of those those grooves. I often describe it as, and maybe that's because I'm a Minnesotan and I I drive in snow all the time. We still have snow outside, by the way. I think of it as like grooves in the road, right? You get grooves. You think something over and over and over again. You start to get grooves in the road. And to make new grooves, to shift, takes time to do that. But we actually have something called, it's called neuroplasticity. Yes. Have that the talk. ability we actually have the ability to create new pathways of thinking. The old pathways don't necessarily go away. You may actually always sort of notice that like little urge to like eat a little bit more or maybe like not pre-bowls quite as much, but eventually you get more and more comfortable and it becomes more automatic. It becomes more habitual. And so that's really where I see like the, you know, the mental and the physical and the distress that sort of links the two. Um, that's really where I see it show up so much for the people I work with. You touched on so many important things there. I do. That was so long. That that was, I think we could unpack that for a, a series of episodes and it would be an absolute pleasure to do that. So um, let's revisit that on another day because we have some some really deep things that we need to cover here. But I, I do want to focus on the analog really quick because you talked about we are, as humans, are analog creatures. Today, in 2023, we are living in a mostly digital world. Most of us sit most of the day. We don't go outside. We're on phones. We're on screens. And um, we're learning slowly that some of that is bad. And, and that, that volume at which we you know, are addicted to, that those things are bad. And, and you know, I, I kind of want to get into that return to the analog that I think we're seeing and that so much of what we do and what's good for us from a diabetes, but also just holistic human health perspective is in the analog. It's sleeping, it's breathing, it's drinking water, it's getting sunshine on our skin in our eyes, going outside and moving a little bit. And and again, like I, I kind of as an athlete benefited from unknowingly having to do that and, and building those pathways and, and building those uh, those tracks in the snow early in my life so that they're serving me well now and they're just part of who I am. And that is a huge advantage that I just lucked into. And on the on the other hand, I do see, especially for our younger, you know, community members who were born into this age where from from a, a, a young age, they were downloading things on phones and iPads and TVs and and their relationship with technology is much different 
And so they're they're experiencing the world differently than we did. And it wasn't even really that long ago that we were, you know, in the same space as them. And so, you know, though those levels of distress and those patterns and those stories are so different than ours. It, it you know, some of these things that are real basic to us because there weren't cell phones when we were children to to play games on that we you know, went outside and played with our friends and ma- played make-believe in a, in a grass field. And, you know, some of us, and that was like the, the highlight of our week. And so like those types of things, like in returning to that analog, that's obviously an extreme example of, you know, returning to childhood. But some of the things like during the pandemic, you know, there was a real rise in awareness of how good walking is for you and just going outside. Cause that was really all we could all do for a while that was, you know, a, a safe, socially distant way for us to get outside. And, you know, I saw in my own neighborhoods, just more people walking and just going outside than I'd seen in a long time. And um, there's no magic to walking. It's just, it's an analog thing that our body, our body moves. We get some sun, we get some air, we drink some water, we get out in nature. And that is a positive benefit and, you know, and a return to analog and kind of that rewiring. So I, I know I'm, I'm rambling and this is, a, this is the part of the podcast where I typically do that, but I do want to focus. I know Eritrea has another question for you before we move on to promoting the conference, but I, I really find this discussion of neuroplasticity and relearning and changing our story to be so valuable. So thank well, you my question is about the same that. thing. Like my question is about the same thing. So I have, okay, so I have a tendency and I did a poll on my Instagram a few months ago where a lot of people agreed with me where I do not trust my technology enough. So like, when I, my pump starts saying like your blood sugar is 90 and dropping, I will suspend my insulin, even though I'm in an, an AI hybrid closed loop system. So for those of you that are in something similar, it's like a tandem Dexcom, the tide pool one, or like the Riley link. Or a Medtronic one. Or a Medtronic one. There you go. Plug. But the point is that like, I have a really hard time trusting my technology to do what it's supposed to do. And that gets me in trouble all of the time because I'll suspend my insulin. Then I'll treat the low. Then I'll resume my insulin once my blood sugar is rising, but now I'm chasing a high. So it's like, how do I rewire? Because that's my question. Is like, I have a therapist sitting right in front of me. Give me that free therapy. How do I rewire my brain to stop doing that? Because I'm missing uh, this whole well, <laughs> As I tell lots of people, I am a therapist. I am not your therapist. Uh, <laughs> so. so You're not confused like, podcast for therapy, by the way. <laughs> no. Yeah. But I think that's a great question. And it's, a, it's certainly something that I think a lot of people experience, right? Really intense hypoanxiety that just doesn't, doesn't just go away with a little bit of practice, right? And I, I, have, I have worked with, with clients who are, who are like that. And another topic that we're going to have at our, at our conference is trauma, trauma and diabetes. And so I'm not going to diagnose you with trauma, but what you described may resonate with people who have experienced a traumatic low blood sugar or really, and, and, and trauma is, is a word that gets used a lot um, in a lot of different contexts, but, but basically what it does is it it sort of it's an event that can kind of instantaneously rewire your brain so rather than something happening kind of slowly over years can you know well i mean there is that kind of trauma but the trauma that a lot of people with low who have low blood sugars will have is an you know an episode where 
we we suddenly do become very distrustful of that you know the the, the treatment is going to work because the low lasted for an hour or that we dosed and we dropped so fast and we weren't expecting it and 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 you know again we can have sort of like long term long term trauma that can do this too in different settings of life but i i think the idea of being traumatized in diabetes is something that doesn't get a lot of recognition and it can be really difficult when endocrinologists and diabetes educators are sort of promoting well just take me you just need to take your insulin or you just need pre bolus you just need to do all of these things and they're not seeing that there may be an event that has happened or a series of events a series of memories that are being coded a certain way that are now influencing our beliefs, our thoughts, and our actions because of an event that has already happened. I often describe it as sort of the past living in the present, that something that has already happened is making, is really influencing what is happening now. And, and again, this is not sort of a diabetes, exclusively to diabetes. I think anybody who's experienced trauma probably knows a little bit of what I'm talking about. And, and there are trauma therapies, uh, things like EMDR, eye movement reprocessing. I am not trained in EMDR, so I always forget what the last letter is. But EMDR, ART, which is accelerated resolution therapy, those are a couple of their somatic experiencing. So those are brain spotting is another one. Those, those are. Those are some trauma modalities. That EMDR is the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. There you go. Sorry. EMDR. Yeah. I reprocess. It's reprocessing. Yeah. Desensitization. EMDR. That's, I went, I was thinking EMRD. I don't know. My brain doesn't. Thinking Acronyms it. Are thinking it. If I wrote it out, I'm sure it would have worked, but I was thinking it in my head. And then, and both of the EMDR and accelerated resolution therapy, um, are both kind of eye movement reprocessing modalities that that help people to sort of it's 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 not like I used to say it's not like eternal spotless eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where you're like forgetting the memory the memory's gone that's not that's not what they do but they basically take a memory and they sort of adjust our emotional reaction to it so that things that happen in the present aren't so triggering that things can feel a little bit a little safer a little a little bit more okay and so i would definitely you know recommend you know checking you know getting a consultation and checking that out to see if if somebody listening is experience is experiencing this or or you are are experiencing this can learn to see if that might you know ask your doctor if emdr is right for you you know because I mean, it's hard for me to say, obviously, on a podcast, but there are there are modalities that that target that support these experiences that people have, and I think that is one of the things that's been unfortunate about the conversation and of mental health within the diabetes healthcare space is the fact that a lot of healthcare providers just want to work on the physical and the biological. They just want to work on insulin adjustments and like let's add a medication or something 
and they aren't really looking at what mentally is happening. Mm. Uh, because some of it is not going to be just something that you can self-talk your way out of. Trauma usually needs a lot more professional support than I think people people recognize. Well, well I think, too, it, new things are uncomfortable. I also think we're learning dramatically more about the human body and mind and brain on a daily, weekly basis. It's like that. And, you know, I'm sure there's a there's a principle for it or there's a chart that shows like how accelerated it has become. But we're learning. We just know so little about our physical and mental, spiritual bodies and how they all work together. And we're learning more every day, but we're just scratching the surface of, of you know, of, of what's there. I do want to kind of shift a little bit because we have an event to promote. We have an opportunity for our listeners to benefit from a lot of the principles that we've discussed today in a two-day conference next month at the time of recording. So May 5th and 6th, 2023, the Diabetes and Mental Health Conference. Uh, for those listening who want more information, we have it listed on our diabetes mental health page. So diabeticsdoingthings.com slash mental health. So you can check out the links there as well. But Allison, while we have you here, who's the conference for? Who should attend and, and what can attendees expect? We've talked a little bit about some of the the paths and some of the sessions that are going to be at the conference, but you know, give us the give us the pitch. Who should go to this conference? Everybody. Oh, and we we were very, and I don't say that sarcastically, we were very intentional about wanting this conference to have something for everybody because there isn't a conference that does this anywhere else. This conference has two tracks. It has a track that is geared towards patients and a track that is geared towards providers. And that track, the one for providers, does offer CEUs. So if you are a healthcare provider who is listening to this, an RD or an RN or a CDCES, you can get some CEUs. Um, and, and then even within the patient track, you know, we have a session, several sessions, I think are one in particular is for parents. Most of them can be watched by parents because I think the more you understand about the experience your children will grow into, the better a parent you will be. So I encourage parents to watch, you know, to watch all of the tracks or all of the sessions in that track. And then same with the providers. I think the more you understand the lived experience of your patient, the better you will be able to support them. Going to a session where they are going to learn about boundaries can be really helpful in you kind of guiding some of the conversation. Um, so the conference is really, it's really for everybody. We have such an amazing lineup, which is at, at our website, which I know is in your show notes. So I won't list out everybody, but our keynote speaker is Dr. Mark Heyman. And we also have our, our welcome keynote is Mila Clark and our closing keynote is Adam Brown. So just, you know, two, you know, phenomenal people in our, in our community. Adam has actually become a therapist since working at Diatribe. Not a lot of people know, know that, but he is actually transitioned out of Diatribe and into, into our world, which I'm really excited about. And a big thing that we do every year is our panel every year. This is our only our second year, but it's a big thing that we do. It takes a, we put on, we do a panel this year. It's going to be on the first night 
And this year we are going to be talking about shame and stigma. So very good continuation of a lot of what we talked about earlier today. We have Susan Guzman from Behavioral Diabetes Institute, Jane K. Dickinson from Columbia, and then Tiara Smith and Felissa DeRose and Renza Sibilia, who are just been phenomenal advocates in the kind of world of stigma and shame with diabetes. So those are some of what I'm looking forward to. We just, I mean, and then of course we've got a session on trauma and we've got a session on boundaries. We've got a session on on everything. And, And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that because this is dedicated just to mental health, we're really able to break things out a lot more into the subtopics of diabetes and mental health. A lot of times in previous years before before COVID, when I still traveled to speak, a lot of the conferences had one session, right? diabetes distress or mental health or something related to psychosocial issues. It was one out of, you know, the six or eight that were at at an event. And you might be up against like a really exciting session Sometimes it was, yeah, sometimes you had concurrent sessions happening. So not, you know, you didn't even have everybody there. Sometimes you were the only session, but it was still like one, 45 minutes or 55, 50 minutes to to talk about everything mental health. Like that was, you could barely scratch the surface. And I think that was really the inspiration for me to kind of partner with Sarah Adams to put this event together because. I didn't like that I only got 45 minutes. Like I was like, there's, that's not enough time. But now we have a day and a half to talk about it, to talk about, you know, to really kind of dive into some of the, the nitty gritty. And it was, we got a great reception last year and we're, we are already getting a lot of good feedback, just people seeing who's on the schedule and like the different sessions that we're going to have. So I'm really excited to see how it, how it all comes together. Well, we are as well. And like you said, it is on our website, diabeticsdoingthings.com slash mental health. And you can find the link there. We'll also include it in the show notes and promote it with the Instagram posts as well. And this is going to be going out at a time of recording next week. And I, I totally agree with you in terms of like, we often refer to diabetes as a disease with too many inputs. And so many of those inputs are centered around the mental health side of things. So to be able to have options for multiple tracks and multiple sessions within one place, I think is an, a tremendous resource and you know meets a really big need here in the online community and the greater community as well. So tell a friend with diabetes to tell a friend with diabetes about the Diabetes and Mental Health Conference, May 5th yeah. and 6th, 2023. And it uh, is recorded. So okay. I wanted to throw that out there in case you already have plans. But it is recorded. The sessions are available for a whole month after the event is over. So you have lots of time to go back and watch the keynotes and the panel and the sessions. So no, no need to worry about like having to, to be, to necessarily be there live. Awesome. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, it's been long overdue and, you know, thank you also for, for being a trailblazer in the diabetes online community and one of the OG bloggers that we, you know, many of whom we've talked to over the years and become friends with. So Thanks for all that you do for people with diabetes and you're the diabetic therapist on Instagram and we'll tag you there as well. So be sure to give her a follow and, and thank you so much for spending the time with us today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun.